This is Voices of COVID-19. I'm Brian Lucas. Thanks for joining us. Since our last episode, it seems like the world changed again. Yes, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and yes, we're still social distancing. But in the middle of all that, we all saw the video. Eight minutes and 46 seconds of inhuman cruelty as a police officer murdered an African-American man on the streets of Minneapolis, my hometown. As I considered how to move forward with the podcast, knowing there are still so many voices that need to be heard, I also felt it would be a missed opportunity to not take a moment to explore the public health crisis of racism, which is actually and unfortunately very much tied to our coronavirus response. The fact is COVID-19 is disproportionately infecting and killing Black Americans. A report by the CDC attributes this to a variety of factors, including living conditions, work circumstances, and underlying health conditions, including lack of insurance or access to quality care. This pandemic is exposing long-standing issues that we'll unfortunately be dealing with long after we have a vaccine for COVID-19. To help me explore this complex topic, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Abdul Omari. Abdul has a PhD in Comparative and International Development Education from the University of Minnesota. He's the son of immigrant parents and is a dedicated public servant in Minneapolis. He served on the Board of Regents at the University of Minnesota for six years and is currently on the U of M Foundation Board of Trustees, as well as numerous other boards trying to address critical issues in the state and to promote leadership development and mentoring. Abdul grew up in South Minneapolis, and last week he watched his city become the epicenter of police violence and racial tensions for the nation and really the world. To reflect on these events and how they are tied to COVID-19, I'd like to now welcome Abdul Omari. Abdul, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. The first thing I wanted to do is just get an initial check-in with you. So at the time that we're recording this, we're a little over a a week past the death of George Floyd. His memorial service was today. It has to be particularly poignant for you, having grown up in South Minneapolis, to see boards on the windows and to see... Again, the helicopters flying overhead. You know, so I grew up deeper in South Minneapolis, but our home grocery store stores, I should say, and uh, Target were the ones on Lake in, in Minnehaha. And, you know, at the, there's an Aldi there now, but it used to be a rainbow and a cub. And I never forget, you know, we always made the three stops. Wherever was the cheapest groceries, we'd get half from rainbow, half from cub or wherever mom, my mom's coupons were at. And then we'd go to Target. And that was kind of like the weekly routine. And I went to high school about three blocks from there at South High. You know, Cup Foods, have known the owner since I was a young kid and spent a lot of time in, in those neighborhoods. I went down last week, the day after the, the first round of like big looting. The media and the cameras, they just can't capture it. It's just impossible. It's, you get down there and you see, and then you're like, it, it really hits you. I took my mom down there yesterday and you know, it's just complete disbelief seeing all the boards and you just, you never imagine that it's going to be at home. And I have to back all the way up because I should have started this with just starting with the fact that another black man is dead and was killed by the police and honoring the life of George Floyd and giving peace and good blessings and whatever prayers or whatever it is that people do to that family and to, to George Floyd. So apologies for not starting that way. 
this obviously came in the middle of a pandemic, a health crisis, but I think it's shining the light on an ongoing health crisis. Racism is a public health crisis in America. It takes these moments, and unfortunately, there have been a number of these moments recently, to maybe shine a light on the fact that there's another public health crisis that we need to get a handle on. And maybe this is a time when we're finally going to grapple with it. You know, the fascinating thing, right, is like you hear Dr. Fauci on national television at, you know, these daily briefings that they used to do say that we've known forever that the Black community in particular and people of color are significantly more likely to have chronic diseases, asthma, obesity, diabetes, right? All of these things, yet and still, we're not approaching it like it's a a public health challenge, right? So let's think about this. Let's try and unpack it. So we're in a global pandemic. We know that in the global pandemic, particularly COVID, it is impacting by droves more black and brown people and particularly black people and killing them at significantly higher rates. We also know, and I'll just keep it to Minnesota and even the Twin Cities. We also know that in the Twin Cities, we have some of the best outcomes there are from education to employment, to home ownership, economics, blah, 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 right? But we also have the biggest gaps between black and white people. So now we're in a global pandemic where people are losing their jobs. So now black people aren't working. In the midst of that, they're being impacted by this disease more than anyone else. Then you add the dynamic of sitting at home for over two months or however long it was. And then another black man is killed by the police. So you have all those factors in there. And it makes perfect sense to me, because I'll be honest, if for the first month of the pandemic, my revenue was cut in half. And I'm very grateful and fortunate that I can still work and have been able to work and and maintain. But I got to tell you, if I wasn't able to, I might have been at Target taking toilet paper, too. Because the reality of it is, is, yes, the media showed all the people taking TVs. But guess what? When I went down there, what I saw were people taking diapers and formula and toilet paper. Because. These are the things that they've been trying to provide for the last two months, but have been unemployed. Coming back to your question, I don't think that the vast majority of people are at all considering this to be a public health crisis or a public health challenge that needs to be systematically taken apart in a way that will remove these links that are all combined that I talked about earlier. To answer the other part of your question, will this be the time? that we start to, because I have seen for even a short amount of time, how we continue to treat and separate the haves and have nots. While I am hopeful that there will be major change, I also cannot set myself up for failure, which means that I will continue to do everything that I can and try to push people and push the system and, and, try and create some shifts, but also I'm not going to be a fool and say that I think this is going to be, you know, the the end all be all and everything is going to shift because I'd be setting myself up for the high likelihood of disappointment. I had a guest on the podcast uh, from Guatemala and she was talking about social distancing and, and, you know, Guatemala has incredible disparities between rich Mm -hmm. and poor. And she talked about the privilege of social distancing and Mm -hmm. how those of us who have a privilege can do it. 
Mm-hmm. And we need to do it because there are people who can't, who don't have a choice. Yep. And I haven't heard that much about that in this country, but but I thought it was a really profound thought. It, it is. It, it's absolutely profound, right? And I mean, I have students of mine who, one in particular that comes to mind, who lives in a, um, a three-bedroom house with nine people, two parents, so that's one bedroom, and then he is 22 and his youngest sibling is two. And the adults have to work. So the, the, even the, the notion of social distancing, right, is virtually impossible. And I have another group of friends that I did my master's program with. It, I was kind of joking with them. We were talking about it. And I mean, they are like the ultimate, they're on it. They don't do anything that they don't have to do. And I'm pretty darn safe. And they're like way safer than I am. One of them asked, why, why do you all think that we're like this? And one of them responded with just that. I think it's my duty and it's my responsibility because I have the ability to do this. I can have my groceries delivered. I have a situation where I can work from home. You know, it's a two parent household that, you know, me and my wife can, you know, go back and forth with taking care of the kids. We don't have to be around other people. And I feel like it's my responsibility because I have that, that, that luxury and that privilege. So yeah, fascinating, fascinating perspective. Aside from the serious health disparities, there's another aspect of this that will have longer term impact, which is a lot of communities that don't have the ability to provide a safe place to study. Loss of income, loss of small businesses, things like that. We know that in this country, anything that impacts America as a whole is going to impact the African-American community even worse. How, How do we address that? Well, that's been one of the saddest things to witness, particularly during covid particularly for those who are on the ground and doing any sort of community or, you know, educational work are seeing these disparities first, firsthand from, you know, technological access to Wi-Fi and actual spaces. Right. And this is um, one of the examples, you know, that you gave up is like a space to study. And one of my students, uh, and again, these are college students, right? So they are already at least have made it to college and I'm not, even, you know, getting to pre-K-12 yet, he would have to be in class, in air quotations, in his in his car. And keep in mind that this first happened in March, right? And so now think about this. You may or may not be working. You have to get on a, you know, two-hour class from your car, which likely means that you're on your phone, not a computer, because I don't have Wi-Fi outside. And it was March in Minnesota. So that probably means that you're using gas because it's cold and you can't sit in your car for two hours. Just, I mean, imagine, right, that that's the space that you're trying to focus and take notes um, as somebody is delivering a lecture. Now, as we go to the pre-K-12 you know, age range, I know Minneapolis Public Schools has been tracking like the percentage of students that are logging on to the systems, whatever systems, you know, they're using to deliver the education virtually. And the numbers are abysmal. I mean, just absolutely abysmal. And so what we are going to see long-term, unfortunately, is a situation where the disparities that we already have from an educational standpoint are going to continue to grow. And that's going to show up in different ways, right? Like it's likely going to show up where we move people along to the next grade, even though they may not have met the standards that we have deemed are the standards needed to pass. And then they'll continue to be behind each year more often than not, right? Now, we talk about the system again. We know that quality education is one of the 
largest pathways to higher income. Uh, so now we're talking about you know a generation of of students that now have lower income again. And when you have lower income or not livable wages, un- under livable wages, you have higher crime rates. When you have higher crime rates, you have higher incarceration rates. On and on and on. Right? Need I keep saying more? And I will also just mention though that when the prisons are full, there are people who benefit from that, and it's not me and you. And so th- this just continues to perpetuate the cyclical impact of what this looks like. And not to mention um, the health outcomes that we were just talking about, right? I mean, there you go, diabetes, asthma, so on and so forth, not to mention the food deserts in low-income uh, neighborhoods uh, where people don't even have access to, to quality foods. And if they do, it's extremely expensive. It's also interesting to me when George Floyd, when the murder happened and, uh, and the protest started happening, people came out of their homes, pandemic be damned. And you can understand it in the hierarchy of concerns COVID can't outrank getting killed by police. I do get the sense that people are understanding the rage a little bit more. And maybe it's because that video is so horrific. I think that could be it, right? Like, I mean, when you think back to, you know, some of the violence in in Jim Crow era, you know, it wasn't until the major news outlets started printing this stuff. And even like as television became more and more popular, that folks really started to say, whoa, like what is going on? You know, this is horrific. We need to start becoming more a part of this. Um, and so that is, it is powerful, right? And that's that's not just here. I mean, that's international and global. I mean, if we look at Hector Peterson in South Africa, right? Like he wasn't the first person to be killed, um, even in the Soweto uprisings, but the just the image that was captured of his body being, being held caused a major uprising and you know, some folks to, I think, start to, to think differently. And again, right, like eight plus minutes. I mean, I, I asked somebody to sit in, in intentional silence for two minutes. And more than likely, unless they you know, are someone that practices meditation and even yoga, I mean, they're going to be like, wow, this is a really long time. <laughs> and I'm not talking about zoning out. I'm like, actually think, try to force yourself to do it and not daydreaming, right? Like this man sat there with his knee on his neck for eight plus minutes. I would say it's easy to pretend like you can walk in someone's shoes, but you can't, right? Like I don't know what your experience is like. I don't know what George Floyd's experience is like, but a couple of the things I've seen that have kind of made the rounds was a, a picture of a man who likes to go for a walk in his neighborhood, an African-American man, and he always takes his dog and his daughter with him. Right. Because he says, I can't go for a walk without my dog and my daughter because otherwise I could, bad things could happen. And then there was another first-person account of a, of a college professor who was pulled over on suspicion of burglary when he was on his lunch mm-hmm. break. And the only reason they let him go is because the, the white woman that said she was burglared said that that wasn't him. Mm-hmm. What can you say to people who don't understand that perspective? How can you help them understand that? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, imagine that Every time you walked out of the house, you felt a level of discomfort in that you were worried that anything you do could turn negative and have a major impact on your body and or your life. I'll give you some examples, right? Like I have really bad allergies, especially as the seasons change. And as COVID hit, 
and the gym closed. I'm a six day a week person at, a, at the gym. And, and then the gym closed. I had to do what I absolutely dread. And that's running, particularly running outside. You know, the guidance was to have a mask. Now, I wore the brightest thing that I possibly could, which is like this green. I actually think it's like a neck warmer type of thing, but it's fairly thin and I would use it to cover my face. I got it from the Get Lucky Run. So it's like, you know, bright green um, from a St. Patrick's Day event. I would only wear my lime green running shoes. And every time I passed a police officer, I waved because I wanted them to know that I was not a threat and that I'm okay. And I would even wave at people that I was running by (laughs) because I am consistently and constantly worried that they're going to think that I'm up to no good. I live in downtown Minneapolis. And so I run and walk down by the river a lot. And the amount that my head is on a swivel to make sure that nobody thinks I am doing anything wrong is conscious in my mind. I don't stop doing it. I mean, I'll give you another example. There was a time, so my mother lives with me, and I had gone to a black tie event in December. It was a a holiday party, and I was in a tuxedo, and she accidentally locked both of the latches on my door, and it was about 1130, and I am in a tuxedo at my own unit, afraid to make too much noise to try and wake my mother up because I didn't want anybody to think I was trying to break in my own apartment. That is just heartbreaking to me. And and I think that more people need to try to understand that. But also, I think it's impossible to know, like one incident, maybe you can wrap your head around it, but it, but to know every day that it's something that you have to think about and deal with, I think is what people, the cumulative effect of that has got to be impossible for people to understand. And, you know, honestly, like it's even hard for many folks who are on my end of that to understand how all the impacts that it has on us too, right? I mean, you talk to some therapists and stuff and they they talk about how it's a mental thing, it's a physical thing, it's draining on both aspects of, of that and how it impacts you know your body and deterioration and stress and all of those things. And I can't even fully comprehend it. I mean, other examples like, you know, I wear ball caps, baseball hats, fitted hats or what we call them or snapbacks, right? I knew very early as a very, before I even started driving, you don't wear them in the car. You take them off. And so every time I get in a car, I take off my hat. I take my wallet out of my pocket. I don't drive with my wallet in my pocket. As a matter of fact, I don't ride in the car with my wallet in my pocket. And those are things that are consistently happening over and over again, because I don't want to give any sort of other reason to have to have an interaction with law enforcement. And I have a very close relative, very close relative, who is a police sergeant. So I'm not saying police are bad, right? Like, I mean, systematically, there are major flaws inherently in policing and law enforcement. But I still am terrified that I'll have an an encounter that will not go well. Do you see areas of hope at this point? Do you see areas of that we can move forward either around the, the George Floyd issues or COVID? Can we learn something? And what do you hope maybe we could take out of this? One, I hope we come back to the fact that we are in the middle of a global pandemic. Let's not forget that. Two, I hope that people begin to start and end with the fact that another person died that should not have died. You know, you you hear things like, 
the killing of George Floyd was sad, but the looting's got to stop. And that should be complete opposite, right? Like the looting is bad, but the killing of black men needs to stop. And so I hope that we begin to kind of flip this framework of how we're thinking about this. And then the other thing that I hope, and this is kind of where we hit earlier, I don't know if it's exactly where we started, but I think on both ends of the spectrum of people who are the recipients of the disparities and the police violence and and then also those who are can be onlookers, it's important to the point that I tried to make earlier that we don't bracket these as one-offs. These are not one-off incidences. These are not one-off events. These are marks and data points and things that have been happening since the inception of the United States, all the way back from indigenous lands being taken and blankets being given to them as offerings that had smallpox in them to slavery and people being taken from their homelands and brought to this country. It is all intertwined. And we cannot say, oh, that was the past. It's done. Let's move on. And there's these data points in these things that are happening that are all connected in some way or the other. And for me, and I think for a lot of people like me, who look like me, who have the you know similar experiences that I have, it's all connected in these ways. And I hope that people will realize that this is a systematic thing. And quite honestly, it is working well because it has been designed to work this way. And in terms of those data points, COVID-19 is providing many, many more data points because there are a lot of people that are losing their lives to the pandemic due to some of these systemic racism issues Correct. as well. And each of them is a data point that we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. I just want to thank you for taking the time today and also just thank you for the leadership that you provide in this community. You've inspired a lot of people. You've touched a lot of lives. And I think that the work that you're doing has deep roots in this community. So thank you for all of that as well. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you doing this. Voices of COVID-19 is an attempt to document the thoughts and feelings of people who are perhaps outside the limelight to get personal reflections on how a pandemic impacts all of our lives. If you know someone who might make a good guest on this podcast, please send them to me at brian at truevoicecommunications.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay separate. And we'll get through this together. <laughs>